Good morning. It's good to be with you again as we continue this series on the world mission of the church. And although we've been uh, doing that, I've been doing this each uh, week of the semester, we are still uh, in the Old Testament because uh, one of the key themes in this part of the series is to demonstrate that God's heart for the nations is rooted in himself, not simply in tasks which the church does, even in obedience to a command. Uh, we started out and noticed how even at the threshold, at the birth of the Jewish covenant, with the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, we see God revealing at the outset that the purpose of the covenant ultimately was that in the seed of Abraham all nations will be blessed. This is repeated to each of the patriarchs. And we saw how this played out in a number of texts, including throughout the Psalms, in Psalm 67, 87, and then last week with the Suffering Servants uh, songs of Isaiah. We saw that Isaiah in particular was a very important turning point because in the Isaiah Suffering Servant songs is when we recognize that God's promise, which was Genesis 12 and following, is actually God's person. So we begin to see that the, the, the fulfillment of the blessing of the nations happens through a person and that person is the suffering servant. They were, of course, looking for prophet, priest, and king. They also got suffering servant. And then we saw how in Acts 13, Paul actually applies that to the life of the church when he says in Isaiah 49, 6, about it's too small a thing for you, my servant, to destroy the tribe of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the nations through my salvation to the ends of the earth, Paul says that he was speaking about us, about the people of God who extend the person of Christ in the world to the preaching of the gospel. Now, Psalm 22 is actually uh, the place I want to start today because Psalm 22 is one of these amazing psalms, uh, though it contains uh, you know, 31 verses. Uh, this psalm is really a psalm that... Um, I wanted to have it done incomplete, as you heard it beautifully done today. But it's a psalm that mostly has two parts to it. Even a first-time reader would easily recognize this psalm has two parts to it. And we mostly know verses 1 to 21. Because verses 1 to 21 are, is framed by psalm, verses very familiar to us connected to the passion of Christ. So here in Lent, we're remembering that. And, of course, it begins with verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This text, of course, is quoted in Matthew and Mark, quoted, by, by the way, both in English, uh, or quoted and also placed in Aramaic, both in the text of Matthew and Mark. So it draws our attention to that text. And then throughout uh, Psalm 22, there are a number of examples which are quoted in the Gospels. For example, uh, Matthew 27, 39, also in Luke 23, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their head, quoting Psalm 22, 7. So the early church is drawing our attention to Psalm 22, saying they recognize this is Jesus. This is a picture of foreshadowing of Christ himself in his passion. Uh, John 19 does the most dramatic thing because John is witnessing the, uh, the soldiers, of course, gambling for the, the clothing of Christ, uh, casting lots for his clothing. Now, John sees even that. Now, these are the very soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. John says even that is part of the Missio Dei, the mission of God, because he says in the text on 19.24, they did this so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. 
Isn't that amazing? That they, quote, divided my garments among them and cast lots my clothing, Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, most of you are familiar with all these texts, including they pierce my hands and feet, count my bones. All of these texts are used a lot in the early church as well. But verse 21 is kind of the end of that. And when you go to verse 22, it is a dramatic shift in both the tone and the feel of Psalm 22. Because when you get to Psalm 22, it suddenly breaks into dramatic rejoicing, dramatic praise, and this incredible kind of visionary view of God's work. It's something that you almost feel a discontinuity between the first part and the second part of Psalm 22. Now, this is why I think this uh, latter part of the psalm is more or less unexplored territory for many Christians. Because as you know, when Jesus quotes a psalm, quotes a verse of the psalm, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not meant to simply highlight that one verse, but it brings to mind, of course, the whole text. Because the Jews had these psalms in their heart and their mind. In the same way, in, in verse 22, this is specifically quoted and placed in the mouth of Jesus by the book of Hebrews. So we're so familiar with Matthew and Mark quoting Psalm 22.1, we're less familiar with Hebrews 2.12 quoting Psalm 22, verse 22. And so in Hebrews 12, it says, here Hebrews going along, and all of a sudden he says, he says, he being Jesus, Jesus says, and then he quotes Psalm 22.22. He puts Psalm 22, in the mouth of Jesus, I will declare your name to my brothers. Uh, I, in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, I want to just say a little word about that before we go on, because in, whenever the Hebrews, and this happens a lot in Hebrews, actually, but it's all throughout the New Testament, says, you know, rather than it says, says, he says, it's a really important theological moment. In fact, if you have not read it, and there's a well-known book out that was written hundred years ago, by B.B. Warfield. How many times has B.B. Warfield been quoted in the chapel of Asbury Seminary? I don't know, but B.B. Warfield wrote a book entitled The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. Now, it's an interesting book for me personally because when I went to seminary, it was the first book I was assigned to read. All right, so I plowed through that book. And one of the chapters in that book is it's known as the It Says scripture says, God says argument. And the basic point he makes, which is one that you perhaps have observed, that many times when the scriptures are quoted in the New Testament, when Old Testament texts are quoted, it doesn't say simply it says, or Isaiah says, though that happens. It sometimes will say, God says so-and-so, when actually it was, it was David or it was Isaiah. Or he, like this, Jesus says, or God says. So whenever you have the interchange, the interplay of it says and God says, or it says, and even, by the way, a couple of times, the Holy Spirit says, then you actually have a great example of how they regarded the authority of the Old Testament as the words of God. So I looked in our library, and we have four copies of that book. And right now, as of today, at 11.30 on the 16th of March, not one is checked out. By the end of the day, I hope the number is zero in the library. I hope there's a waiting list for that book. Okay. I won't check. Don't worry. It's okay. 
But the point is, this part of the psalm, which is introduced by the lips of Jesus, actually introduces this amazing section of the psalm, which concludes, as we did uh, earlier in the reading, with this phrase. Listen to this verse, in verse 27, 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, it's Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, it's Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All right, so it's an amazing global vision. Again, the psalmist brings things together. And we saw how in Psalm 57, he, he, the, the worship, the act of worship brings together the ironic blessing number six and the Genesis 12 Abrahamic blessing. In this case, he brings together the original covenant. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us in this series, remember that we went back in Genesis 12 and we looked at the patriarchal blessings of Genesis 12, 22, 24, and 26. Look at those texts and how it all unfolds with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have a really interesting interplay of words. Because he says in Genesis 12, 3, he promises Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Kol mishpahot. All peoples. It can be translated all families or all clans. So the initial promise says kol mishpahot. Then when you go to Genesis 22, which is also to Abraham after Isaac, he has the same exact blessing. All nations will on earth be blessed because you obeyed me, but he uses here kol goye all nations, meaning ethnic groups. So you have all the clans or families, all the ethnic groups. Then you go to the uh, Isaac's blood, when he goes to Isaac, Genesis 26, 4, in your seed all nations, kol goye, will be blessed. And then when it completes with Jacob, all peoples on earth, kol mishpahot, will be blessed through you. So you actually have the four times it's given, it's kol mishpahot, kol goye, kol goye, kol mishpahot. It's a nice little package. It's actually purposely done that way. It's not, you shouldn't read this and think, well, what is the difference between a clan, you know, or families and ethnic groups? Is this some kind of uh, distinction being made here? No, no, no. It's actually a form of verbal resonance. All right? It's like in, in English poetry, we have sound rhyming, right? We like to have things like the song we just sang, with the in words rhyme. We like that, the, the rhyming of words. But in Hebrew, you have thought rhyming. They love to create thought resonance. So two similar words are used, and it creates a resonance, right, that moves you forward. All right, so you have this juxtaposition of words, families, ethnic groups. And then we get to Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 does what Psalm 67 does. It brings them together. So when it says here, all the families of the nations will bow before him, it is actually bringing out the very fact that the kol mishpahot goyim, it brings out all the nations, all the families, all the nations will be brought before him. So he's purposely reminding us of the whole covenant of God, which ultimately at the end of the day, it's great that it's actually brought out in the context of the passion, because the passion is what makes this possible. And one of the things that happens, I think, uh, in, in the Christian tradition is that we've tended to separate out, you know, the crucifixion, the passion of Christ, his resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, etc. is all separate events. In the New Testament, these are all brought together as one great redemptive event, of which has multiple parts to it. And so this, again, brings uh, the passion and the victory together. So when we go to Genesis, uh, to Matthew, 
part of the purpose of this whole study is to show the connections of all of this. Because I think it's a mistake if you ever get to the Great Commission and you view it, as many Christians do, as something that simply falls out of the sky. But this is actually an extension of all these promises throughout the law, the prophets, and the writings. And even Matthew, when you get to the Great Commission text, and we'll say more about that later on in the series, the, the concept of the Great Commission, but right now, just look at this latter concluding part of Matthew's Gospel. This in itself is a part of a great flow in Matthew himself, in his revelation, what God's, God's given us through Matthew in this text. So if we might just have a little IBS moment here. You know, if you can't do that here, where can you do that, right? If you take Matthew and you step back, okay, and look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, just, just point out a few things which lead up to this passage. First of all, Matthew has a, a, a genealogy just the way Luke does, right? But Luke's genealogy traces back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy traces back to Abraham, all right? So you have, he actually wants to start with Abraham. That's important. That's the whole covenantal thing. He actually uses a hapax uh, ligament, a one-time usage thing, the calling Jesus the son of Abraham, only found in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy. And then he includes four Gentile women. All right, Luke records no, no women at all, actually, in his, in his uh, genealogy. Matthew has four Gentile women. He has Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth's a Moabite. And Bathsheba is likely to be a Hittite. So you have these four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus. That's really important to Matthew to demonstrate the kind of global scope of this. Then, of course, Matthew alone has the Magi coming from the east, right? So that's not found anywhere else. Here the, so here are the nations of the world streaming to Christ, fulfilling Isaiah 60, verse 3, where the nations come bringing their gifts to, to the king. And by the way, that Isaiah 63, it's the goyim there, the nations. Not countries, not political countries. And then, of course, in Matthew, you have the flight to Egypt. All right, really important because Egypt is easy if you're an Egyptian to feel like you're on the underside of redemption because you're the ones that enslave God's people. But instead, Egypt becomes the very place where God, God the Messiah, is protected from harm. So Egypt is redeemed in the Matthew account. That's very, very important. So Egypt is not a symbol of oppression, but now a symbol of protecting the Messiah. Christ comes out of Egypt, just like the Israelites did, so it ties into the whole redemptive story there. And then, of course, when Jesus inaugurates his ministry in Matthew, he does it in Galilee, right? Land of Naphtali and Zebulun, a whole point about the people in darkness have seen a great light. So Jesus starts his ministry, inaugurates it in Galilee amongst the Gentiles. This is really important to Matthew. You have all these special Matthew texts in Matthew. The vineyard laborers, the parable of the two sons, not the prodigal son, but the two sons, the ten virgins, sheep and the goats. All of these parables of Matthew that bring out this theme are unique to Matthew's gospel. He has Gentile healings, the Roman centurion's servant, the Gadarene demoniac, the Canaanite woman's daughter. All these things are in Matthew's gospel. And, of course, he has the, the sign of Jonah. Now, Jonah's another person that you'd want to throw under the bus, right? The proverbial, you know, bus. Because Jonah is one that we would normally associate as like the paradigm 
of one who flees from God or runs from God. So Jonah is like the person you're not to be like. But actually, again, Matthew will not leave Jonah behind. So instead, he says, Jesus, of course, says in Matthew's gospel that, uh, well, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. So now Jonah's basically act of rebellion where he's being judged by the fish, as it were, becomes changed to a symbol of the, of the resurrection of Christ. Jonah comes out of this whale, the, the fish in order to do what? To preach the gospel to the nations, to the Ninevites. The, this is the whole Psalm 57. The, even his enemy, even Israel's enemies get redeemed and made part of the covenant people. In the same way, Jesus comes out of the, the tomb and the gospel is preached to the nations. So Jonah becomes, gets shifted by Matthew. It's intentional work by Matthew to bring these things out. And then, of course, in Matthew uh, has his apocalyptic chapter, Matthew 24, discussing the end of time. And he, yeah, he talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and people's love growing cold, all of that. It's like Mark 13. But Matthew says, oh, what? wait a minute. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. So Matthew, in the middle of the gospel, wants to remind us of where the whole thing is headed. So when you get to Matthew 28, this is not something new. This is not something that he drops into his gospel. This is not something that's sewed on the end of something. This is integral to the whole theology of Matthew's gospel. Now, we don't have a lot of time to develop this, but a couple points I want to make about Matthew's gospel, and then we will have to pick this up again another time. In Matthew's gospel, he, of course, unlike any of the other great commissions in Mark, Luke, John, or Acts 1.8, Matthew has the setting in where? Galilee. So in Matthew's gospel, and only here, the Great Commission is actually given on the mission field. Okay, it's not taking place in Jerusalem. And by the way, Matthew's gospel also has the centurion saying, not the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but the centurion saying, this surely was the Son of God. I mean, all the way through, he's trying to keep us connected to the Gentile mission. Now, in this passage, uh, there's so much here, but just, you know, if you look at verse 19, and we'll come back to this more next time, but in verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach and obey everything I've commanded you. Now, that passage only contains one imperative. Now, if you go to your church, and I, ask, I encourage you to do this, because I've done this many times over the years. If you go to your church and you ask your congregation, they say this passage has one verb that's in the command form. What is it? You will get a very high percentage that will tell you, almost intuitively, because it made sense to them, that the imperative here must be go, right? That's what people intuitively think. This is why it's very helpful that you know better to look deeply in the text and realize that go is, an, is not an imperative here. Uh, these are participles. Going, baptizing, teaching are, are participles. The only command is what? Make disciples. Okay, this is something we'll bring out in a later point in this series, but the central command is to make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say make disciples of individuals, which is how we mostly interpret it, actually. It says, make disciples of nations. Now, in that, if again, if you go to the average Christian on the street, go out here to Wilmore, pick some off the street, say, are you a Christian? Okay, great. Read this passage. 
They would say, when this says make disciples of nations, they would say this refers to countries like USA, Nigeria, Kenya, Brazil, China. We should bring the gospel to every country of the world. Well, if that's what it says, there are probably around, it depends on how you count countries, but the young nations counts 193 countries in the world. 193. If you include uh, Taiwan and Vatican and you include Palestine, you're 196. And so let's be, let's be generous. Let's say 196. So that means if we were to say that this passage, if this passage is commanding us to make disciples in 196 countries of the world, then guess what? We have done it. Let's now pronounce the benediction and go home. <laughs> Congratulations, church, you did it. This is where a little, a little Greek helps you, okay? This is where it's helpful to pull open your Greek New Testament. Thank God you had Greek here. And look at the passage and say, what does it actually say? It does not say, make disciples of all Basileia or Agros or any other word that might involve, like make you think about countries or geography. It says, pantata ethne, all the nations, ethne, we got our word ethnic from. This is making disciples of all nations, all people groups. Okay, so let's now ask the question differently. How many people groups are there in the world, not just how many political countries are there in the world? Because if that's the scope of it, then we're in a different situation. Well, thankfully, there are plenty of organizations that track that very question and ask, okay, how many people groups are there are in the world? There's three main groups that look at this. One is the IMB, which is the Southern Baptist. They've got to be there. Then you have the, uh, the Joshua Project, which is a popular evangelical website. You can go look at that. And then the World Christian Database, based at a school X that I used to teach in, and I was a part of that ministry. Now, if you go to the IMB, they will tell you there's 11,751 ethnic groups or, or people groups in the world. That's a big difference from 196 to 11,751. The Joshua Project will tell you, if you go on the website today, it'll tell you 16,587. It's all based on how you define a people's group. In our own analysis, which we think was the more, more superior one, in the World Christian Database, we identified 13,611 people groups in the world. Okay, now that raises the question, okay, of how many of those people groups have access to the gospel, have received the gospel. And we'll look at what that means in a minute. Well, basically, uh, there's a lot of complications to that, but basically one of the rules is a 5% rule. If a, if a people group has less than 5% Christian, it's considered to be unreached. That means the church is not yet viable, okay? Not enough evangelized people or, or people that have responded to the gospel. So the IMB says there are 7,000 people groups that have no access to the gospel. The Joshua Project says there's 6,738 groups. Now, of all those groups, let's just take the 7,000 number, about 3,000 of those have missionaries or workers working in those groups trying to get the gospel and put in those groups. There's over 3,000. There's no one working at all. Nobody has been there at all. They've never heard the name of Jesus one time. Now, when you get into that realization, then you realize that, and by the way, the World Christian Database 
we didn't actually want to impose a geographic, you know, kind of a slate on this because this is not about geography. People groups migrate, they're all over the world. There are many unreached groups right here in the U.S. They're all over the world. So you actually look at the world. The world is really in three broad groups that we call World A, World B, and World C. Now World C would be people that have heard the gospel and responded to it. So all of you are part of World C. Congratulations. World B are all the people that have access to the gospel but have not yet responded to it. We all know people in the situation. The gospel is in their language. There may be a church on their corner. They may have parents that are Christians, but they themselves are not Christians, okay? They have access to the gospel. Then there's another group, World A, are people who neither have responded to the gospel, but they have no access to the gospel at all. I basically say it's kind of like saying World B is like people who are lost, but they have a GPS. They actually have directions. They, they know if they followed it, they could get to Christ. People in World A have no access. They have no GPS. Both groups are lost, but one group has no, no GPS, no, no access, no way of knowing what the way answer is. Now, in the world as a whole, about basically 2 billion people are in the World C category, 2 billion Christians in the world. Now, in the middle group, the world B is about 2.4 billion people. That's about 40% of the world. And then about 27% of the world is in the 1.6 billion, world A. Now, let's just take a little bit of a, a point here. Let's just say that we were to have every Christian in the world were to become a Billy Graham fired up evangelist. Okay, let's just take it. All of you just suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I have the ministry of evangelism. You can't, you're so excited, you cannot wait till the end of this message. You run out the door. So let's just assume that happens to all Christians all over the world. Every Christian in the world becomes an amazing evangelist. This is pretty optimistic. Let's, let's even raise the optimism notch even further. Every single person you witness to comes to Christ instantly. This is pretty good, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you say that's like optimistic? All right, every Christian becomes an amazing evangelist, and everybody you witness to immediately responds to Christ. Okay, there will be like a kaboom evangelism explosion all over the world. Boom! You would be, it'd be headline news. Okay, after this was over with, and we did all did all our thing, we went we went to the mall, you know, just one after they come out come out of the, the malls, we share Christ, they receive Christ. Next person, I mean, just, just do it. Do it all day long, all day long. Just process the whole unbelieving world. Granted, when that happened, the, the church would go from 2 billion people to 4.4 billion. Okay, that would be, we would more than double in size. This chapel would be full of students preparing for seminary. It would be unbelievable. But what is amazing is even after that, there'd be 1.6 billion people who never heard the name of Jesus. Because that group is beyond, is beyond linguistic, social, cultural barriers where there, there is no one to share the gospel with them. No one knows their language yet. No one has crossed their boundary. They have no friends or neighbors or coworkers or school friends or anybody else. That group can only be reached unless there is a 
intentional move across a cultural boundary. Now, it's true that if you're dealing with millennials uh, in North America that are lost, there's plenty of millennials that are lost, you need a specific strategy to reach them as well. This is not to, d to deny the importance of that. We have a huge evangelistic mandate in the church to reach everyone without Christ, wherever they are. But you can't confuse the two, people who have access, those who have no access. Because at the end of the day, even the greatest evangelistic thrust imaginable will never reach a big group. Basically, 27% of the world would remain unreached. Now, if you look at the world today, and I look around this, this room here, I, I see Shivraj Mahendra back in the back of the room here. And Shivraj is from India. India is one country. But there are hundreds and hundreds of people groups in India. And he happens to be from a group of fisher folk that, have, that, that are unreached. They, they don't have access to the gospel. All right, that's really important. That's strategic because here we have a Christian here who is from a group that's unreached without access to the gospel. My daughter Bethany is here. I won't embarrass her, but she is home on furlough. She went to work with the Alagua in northern Tanzania. About 40,000 of them, no known Christians, completely impervious. They don't speak Swahili, the language of East Africa. There's no access to the gospel. People in the nearest village two hours away don't even know they're there. And God sent 10 people there to bring the gospel to them. You look at what's like Nigeria. Nigeria, you, you hear all these stories about Nigerian Christianity, which is true. It's amazing. But if you actually look at Nigeria, Nigeria is full of many different groups, many ethnic, uh, ethnic nations. Tanzania has plenty of Christians in it, but they're not among the Alagua. If Jesus said, make disciples of all the Tanzanians, it's done. Or of, of, uh, put the church in every, in every country, including Tanzania, it's done. But there are many groups that don't have the gospel who live in Tanzania and India and also in places like Nigeria. So Nigeria, yes, if you look at Nigeria, if you look at the southeast or southwest, the Yoruba, probably half of them or a third of them are Christians. You look over at the uh, southeast, uh, the, the Igbo, the Igbo are largely Christians. So a lot of these stories you hear about all the amazing movements of God in Nigeria, yeah, they're among Yoruba and Igbo people and some other people groups. But as you go north of Nigeria, northern Nigeria, and you reach people like the Magazawa, or especially the, the Hausa, which is the biggest group there, or the Ativ, or the Fulani, there's all these groups up there. They do not have the access to the gospel. So there's really big differences between a country, politically speaking, and a nation. So I think when God looks at the world, he doesn't see our political boundaries. Isn't that amazing? He didn't see Nigeria. He sees the Igbo, he sees the Yoruba, he sees the Hausa, he sees the Magazawa, he sees the Tiv, he sees these people groups, the Fulani. That's what he sees when he sees Nigeria. And therefore we have to have our own kind of cartography adjustment to see the world as God sees the world, as the nations of the world. Well, I want to close. I had the experience uh, in China. Uh, China, of course, is a place with teeming with people groups, many of whom don't have the gospel. And, of course, you hear the stories of the amazing work of the gospel in China. And any Chinese Christian is a great asset because of the sheer numbers of Chinese in the world, in diaspora, and in China as well. And I was, had the privilege of going to China and teaching um, English in China with a team of 10 English teachers. We were training 
English, Chinese English teachers to teach English in middle schools in China. And we were in Wuhan. In the course of my semester there, teaching and working, I had the privilege of meeting a woman who, over the course of time, she realized that she needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we weren't allowed to share the gospel in our classes, but we had this opportunity after class, go to the park and talk and share. And so this woman uh, made it very clear at some point she wanted to know more. And one thing led to another, and so she wanted to be baptized. So I made the, being a Methodist, I made the arrangements that we would do it quietly, sprinkle her in my apartment. She would have none of that. She said, sprinkle. I want to be fully immersed. So I said, <coughs> okay, um, how are we going to do that? This is China. <coughs> you can't just go baptize somebody publicly in China. So she said, well, I want to be baptized where the Han and the Yangtze River meet. I'm like, are you crazy? She said, no, the Lord has told me I want to be baptized right there. This is where, in the, where you say as a Christian to be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. I said, okay, <coughs> how could you deny her? I said, but we'll do it at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, those of you who know, you know me, I, I mean, at 2 o'clock in the morning, all the way back through my 57 years of existence, I'm pretty much asleep at 2 a.m. I made the wrongful assumption that everyone in the world is that way. I thought, 2 o'clock in the morning, nobody will be around. I go down, and it was packed with people. I mean, the Chinese are walking around at 2 a.m., what are they doing? <laughs> they should be asleep. So here I am, me and this brother, and, we, and this young Shang uh, Fei, this Chinese woman. We go along, and there was this like little turn. I noticed there was these steps that went down into the river, and there was nobody around. So we went down into the river, and I had the privilege of baptizing her, and the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, in the Yangtze River. And when she came out of the rivers, this is a city of about 5 million people at that time. Now it's many more. But she had the, the, the glow of, the, of Christ in her face. And she became eventually a very important translator in the heart of the Chinese government. All right, so she is a great witness for the gospel there among her own people. She said to me, after on the way home from this, she said to me, um, I would like to have a baptismal certificate. I thought, where did she learn about baptismal certificates? <laughs> where are such things learned? I mean, did she Google it? This is before the days of Google. I, I didn't understand it. So I said, you want a what? I want a baptismal certificate. I want to have a record of this. So I didn't have any of my briefcase. I don't normally carry baptismal certificates. So I went to the Chinese government. And I requisitioned a typewriter, yes, a typewriter. And I made, with like, you know, the asterisk key, she made a nice little border and all, and I made a nice little, <laughs> I made a bachelor's certificate. I filled it out, I signed it, I stamped it with some Chinese stamps, and the official, like, the, you know, the, the Hubei province, I don't know what it meant, but I just stamped it on there, <laughs> it was really official. And I presented her her certificate, which she was so happy to have this. Because she said to me, now you are ordained. I said, yes, I'm ordained. I'm Reverend Timothy Tennant. And you have an official baptismal certificate. And years later, uh, she was married. And I had the privilege of performing her wedding. 
And we had a great time re reuniting them. And of course, she's been a great witness. And she says to me at the end of our time, that she says, by the way, I still have my baptismal certificate. But the, great, the greatest thing was not that. The greatest thing was that she had become a, an indigenous witness within her own people. And she could do more in a day than I could have done in a lifetime. You see, that's the power of the whole church bringing the whole gospel to the whole world. This is not about the West reaching the rest. We have a pull to play. I think every continent should always be ascending continent. Every continent should always be a receiving continent. We will be guests, we'll be hosts, all that will always be there. But we never can forget the importance of how when God raises up people within these nations, within these people groups, they will be tremendous witnesses to that group. And this is what Jesus envisions as discipling the nations. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Well, we thank you for the grace of this time and pray that you would guide us and direct us and be faithful witnesses to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.